Welcome to Amateur All Tours, the podcast where every week we sit down and have a discussion about a movie. I'm your host, Mike, and joining me is my brother, Brian, and we would like to welcome you to Amateur All Tours. Alright, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us for this next installment of First Impressions. Uh, I'm your host, Mike, and joining me as always... Hey guys, it's Brian. And, um... Yeah, so, episode two? Well, how, well, first off, how do you think the first first impressions had gone? Uh, I think it went pretty good. Uh, I was listening to it the other day on um, the SoundCloud link, and uh, I liked I liked how it went. I think we, we have a good exchange, good dialogue. I think I like the way it was going, how it's just kind of a stream of consciousness, and how we go into these first impressions without any notes. It's literally... You know what the title is first impressions so we just go off the cuff what we think about it stuff we liked about it and i don't remember if we gave recommendations or not I, th- I don't think we gave star ratings but i think we we get yeah whether like strong mild weak recommends whatever we can start doing that i don't yeah i don't really remember what we were doing but i liked what we did even if i don't remember it so. yeah i thought it i thought it went pretty well um especially for i think star wars was definitely like a a good movie for that to for that to be kind of like the guinea pig but moving on we have our second one which we alluded to and i believe that first impressions and so episode number two was quentin tarantino's the hateful eight and i'm gonna pause this for at and fuck it never mind i'll edit this out so hateful eight uh so we we did see this on the was a seventy millimeter yeah road seventy show? millimeter roadshow yes and well should we should we preface so we, okay so we originally tried to record this literally after right after we saw it we made we actually made this big plan of seeing this um it was well, I don't know, what was it Christmas it came out um yeah I think so it came out on Christmas and we made big plans to see we we heard it was going to be around us and we're like wow we have to see this i think we found out in july or something like that yeah so, we did that's how i got interested in that in that in that um that theater in that theater because for everybody yeah, the theater is the afi silver springs theater um and because they have a special i don't even know it's like i guess it's a film appreciation where they when i found it um i just kind of looked up hateful eight 70 millimeter roadshow and then you know that was the closest theater to us, or at least the most convenient one. And so I just started looking up this theater, and they have the really cool thing about this theater is that a the uh, main showroom where they actually screen like the big films is fucking amazing. I've never been in a greater Dude, theater. It's fucking huge too. Yeah, it's huge. Um, it has a huge screen. That's where they show the seventy millimeter, obviously. But also this place showed when I saw it. It showed Boogie Nights, it showed Jaws, it showed... We saw Seven Samurai there in the same theater. That was amazing. Probably greatest cinematic experience of my life besides The Hateful Eight, seeing Akira Kurosawa's uh, Seven Samurai in original printing uh, in, on, in this film. But, um, so yeah, so we basically found out in July, and I said, this is going to be... I knew that, even from the start, that this was going to be one of the greatest cinematic experiences of my life <clears throat> as of now. And I was totally right, but we'll get into that later. Um, but, yes, yeah, so we found out, and then we got right out of the movie. We literally walked back to the car, and we said, we're going to record this first impression. It's going to be great. It's going to be, you know, guerrilla style. It's going to be so cool. And then, what the fuck happened? So, what had happened was, so Brian, it's now we're around, like, two and a half hours away from this theater so i'm like all right well we're not gonna just sit in our car and, and talk for like an hour and a half to two hours because that's how that's Which how we would have done but we're like let's record it anyway yeah that's so what the like, first impression is we're like well let's just do it on the, as we drive home so we brought our mics put brian the mic on and i had both laptops because that's what we record on uh on uh on our laptops and I had them both in my laps, and we just started going. And now, and then we were having technical difficulties. The computers were 
shutting down, so the recordings were stopping. And, and honestly, like for it was me, really I... cramped. And at one point, Brown was like, "Fuck it!" Like, yeah. I, I'm just this is so frustrating. Yeah, and I literally ripped my headset off my head and said, "Fuck it!" Like, this is really annoying. Yeah, and that so we were gonna do it that when we got home, but we got back really late. And then I think a, a few days later, we went down to Florida to see our buddy, and we and I well, a I couldn't bring my laptop because well, first off, I had a, a training trip for my swim my college swim team. So I was really limited in what I could bring to begin with, and we're also with our buddy, and we just couldn't. It just record. wasn't the right time. Yeah, and so, and then I was there, and then I didn't, and then I, we didn't see each other, and then. And just, now here we are, an entire so, semester of college later. Yes. So but, a significant time has passed, but you know we've only seen this movie one time. We've barely done any research in, into the film, so this I feel like this yeah. is still a good. I watched I watched one review. Okay, even still, and, that's, and that was it. This is still a ripe opportunity to still talk about it because we haven't seen the movie any other times, um, and I'm still even still even hyped about that experience five months later, and yeah. so it regardless, even though all this time has passed, this is still a good opportunity for a first impression. Even yeah. though you guys didn't know that, we just wanted to preface it with that. So it might not be as raw as usual because we've had a long time to think about it. I think it's it. going to be still just as raw, but it might it might be a little bit more linear. It'll be we'll be fine. This is going to be a good review. It's going to be perfect. Yeah. So anyway, I guess let's let's talk about the experience um, and like walking in because that's like in itself and ex- like something to talk about. So when we walked in, we got there like and well, we ordered really. our tickets beforehand. And we got there at like forty-five minutes ahead of time. Yeah, and nobody was there. Yeah, no one. Well, yeah, no. Well, because no one else. Like, uh, I think someone wanted to go to that show, and the woman was like, "Well, it's sold out." So, but there's another one like two hours later. So come to that, but show up an hour early for your your ticket. So we got our tickets. We're waiting in line. We got the like booklet, and we were looking through yeah. that. We're like, and there's a sh- and there's a theater beforehand, and I was like, "Well, is anyone in there?" So I walk in. The movie's playing. I'm like, oh fuck! So I walk out. I'm like, yeah, it's playing. And we're just sitting in like the concession area, just looking over the book, like taking Snapchat, like Snapchats, and being like hype as shit, making Instagram posts. Um, I still have my uh, my booklet. That yeah, I still have I'll, my book too. I'll probably post it to the Instagram Facebook page. Yeah, and for those and, of you who saw the 70 millimeter roadshow, you guys will know what we're talking about. It had like behind the scenes photos. Why? What is seventy millimeter? Why it's really good? Talking about a Nina, uh, a Neo Marconi. Yeah, Neo Marconi also had like brief intros of the actors. It was like just fun shit like that, and I had a blast with that in and of itself. And then yeah. we got into the theater. Yeah, and then so we're waiting. We see a line starting built. We're like, okay, well, we might as well wait in here. And people are like really excited. Um, I heard them like talking about uh, Django and Inglorious Bastards and like just Tarantino in general, which I thought was really awesome. And then we get let in, and thank thank God we got there when we did because that theater was fucking packed. And so we go and we get like dead center, and it's it's awesome. And then the theater gets packed, and then the um, and then the lights dim, and then. The overture starts playing. So the now okay. So the seventy millimeter, other than being in seventy millimeter, which is like the HD of film. Yeah. And I think it has like a wider like aspect ratio or something. I like don't it, know. It, it's something that's it. It's something that <clears throat> is awesome. <laughs> I don't know. It's something. It's like it's like the pristine film. And so it had an overture, an intermission, and I, I'm assuming like extra f- length. No, I think it was just the only thing that was added was the overture and then the intermission. But actually, actually, I'm getting really excited just thinking about this again, like thinking back, because what happened was we were just sitting there, the lights dimmed, except for one that was shining on you. Yeah, I was actually just about to fucking bring that up. I'm um, actually glad you remembered that. Yeah, it was like the one light that they kept on, I guess, for people trying to get in. It shined literally directly on Mike. Um, so, you know, take that for what you will. But anyway... Um, I, first of all, I love a Neil Morricone, uh, as per yeah. my uh, affinity of Sergio Leone. You've 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 at least two of them on vinyl, right? Two yeah, I have the the score for Once Upon a, Once Time, Upon in a Time in America, and then for a few dollars more. But 
I just think Ennio Morricone is one of the greatest musical composers of our modern time, and I'm honestly... Righteously so. Oh, yeah, right, how many rightly so. Movies, how many movies has he... Um, he's written over for, like, 700 movies. Yeah, I was gonna say, it's, like, a ridiculous but, number. And But also, like, Tarantino's been known to, like, take uh, some of his songs and use them in uh, Inglorious Bastards and Django, Um and this is the first time that a new Marconi has written an original score for Tarantino, which I wasn't—I was more excited for that than more than the actual movie itself, because, hmm. and, and rightly so, because this movie it opens up with the overture immediately, and already <clears throat> the tone is set, and I am already just enraptured by this movie, uh, mainly be, uh, mainly because it's like it starts off heavy bass bassoon. Dude, I I have the opening song on my iPod. I yeah, love it. It's, it's really it's good. So- well, wait, wait, the overture or the... Well, well, the, well the overture is echoing, is echoed throughout the entire rest of the movie. Oh, because I, I was talking about the opening credits, but, I mean... Well, it's the same thing, really. I, I, I remembered more of a, uh, like, chimes and, and yeah. like, kind of, like, in... Uh, well, it's, it, it sets it. the mood of, like, foreboding nature. Yeah. And, and we're just sitting there for, like, three minutes, or, like, four minutes, just listening to this song, and it's, like... And that's what I love about this movie is that, and the whole experience is that already, you know, we already know cinema isn't made like this anymore for whatever reason. I wish I wish I was alive in the time of like the 60s and 70s when this shit still went on because this is really how you're supposed to watch a film because already I was already taken to the to the movie already at, but just by the music alone. And that also is a testament to Ser- or not Sergio Leone, um, Ennio Morricone but also, you know, um, Tarantino's just uh, determination to just create this experience again. But so, you know, the overture plays and then the light finally dims off of Mike and then the movie starts. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, yeah. So, I mean, before we get into the movie, yeah, that was my experience. We get in and I'm like really hyped up. I'm like, oh, sweet. This is awesome. And we previously saw Sam- Seven Samurai there. And I was like, wow, that was really awesome. And then I'm sitting there. I'm really excited for this overture. And then it's it's literally it's packed. People are still walking in when the overture plays. And yeah, literally every light dims except the lone spotlight on me, and it's blinding me. It's not even like a behind me and on me. It's like in front of me and in my eyes. And I mean, I guess that shouldn't really matter when you're listening to the music. But when you're just like, are you are you kidding me? This is so stupid. That's what I was thinking. And um. And then people were walking in, and they were, like, tripping over people. I'm like, why? Like, did you – I didn't know what people – what those people thought was going to happen. Like, did they – just they think that people weren't going to show up to see 70 There's always one asshole who's late. Like, oh, there was, there was, like, 25 you, assholes. You know what I mean? Late. Like, the, yeah, the no. one as per – if you're counting in a room of, you know, about 300 people, you probably even more, there's always going to be at least 20 assholes who are late. So. Yeah, and so they were, like – they weren't being – they were being very loud and – I was like, shut the hell up. And then this damn spotlight in my face. But I, I still enjoyed it. It was awesome. And then the light finally dims. I'm like, thank God. And then the the curtains open up, which I thought was really awesome. And then the movie plays. And then the score that I was referring to that I have on my iPod is starts playing. And it's fantastic. The, the See, now, this is where... I kind of, I don't really know how I feel about The Hateful Eight. I mean, I liked it, but, like, I don't know where it, like, I don't know where it, um, I would rate it on my Tarantino. Definitely not at the bottom, but it's not at the top. No, it's definitely not at the top for me. But, like, like, I think the first reason comes into its shot. Now, I really liked the, it's like a, it's like a statue of Jesus, like a, something like that. And it, it pans down to a carriage rolling in. And there's, like, this great score is playing. And I'm really engrossed in what's going on. It looks beautiful, although there's not much landscape, which is yeah. what I was... Well, that, that's, like, the main critique. It's, like, you used it in 70 millimeter, and all you shot was a few landscapes and then inside of a cabin. It's, it's actually funny. Um, referring to one of the reviews I watched, actually the only review, was Red Letter Media's... Um, half in the bag, and one of the two reviewers, he, uh, he, he, he was, it was funny, he said the only two movies that have used 70mm was Paul Thomas yeah, Anderson's the Master. the Master, and this, 
And he's like, both of them use this fantastic, um, <clears throat> this fantastic medium, and they don't fully use it. Well, I think uh, I think the master did utilize it. Well, what he said about the master was that most of it was indoors. But even still, I think... Well, because he said there were outdoor landscape shots, and they looked fantastic, but there weren't nearly enough of them. And I think the same thing goes for the Hateful Eight, is that when they are there... Well, first off, it's covered in fucking snow, so it's like white. There's no contrast. That was my issue, that shooting in the snowy tundra, that there's no contrast to anything. It's even hard for depth of field. Like, you, could, you couldn't really tell how far something was. It just either looked really fucking far or really close. Well, I don't know. I thought it was fine. Uh, I, like, I'm going to tell you, like, the, re- the 70 millimeter didn't, att- wasn't what attracted me. The fact that there was going to be a road show with the, with an overture and intermission and an original score, another Tarantino movie. Um, I don't know. Mm. I feel like, well, because Tarantino, you know, is the, the greatest cinephile ever so i feel like it's it's not he didn't he didn't use 70 millimeter because it's like it utilizes all these pretty effects he used it because it is it looks great and this is the way he needs to shoot a movie you know it's yeah. the, i mean i thought it was good don't get me wrong but it was just i was expecting more like kind of like Django. i was expecting more flowing landscapes and captivating images um but okay, so before we get into the plot, I I guess go off the stream of consciousness. What did you think of the cast? I thought it was great. There wasn't there, the thing about Tarantino is that he always brings the best out of anybody in any role he you put him in, like he puts them in. And so there really when I left the theater, there wasn't a single weak performance. And if anything. The weakest performance that I thought was going to be in the film turned out to be one of the strongest, which was um, Walton Goggins, who was the oh, sheriff. Yeah. I literally went into the movies thinking like he would just be a one-off side character, nothing too much about him. He was one of my favorite characters. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I even thought... above Samuel L. Jackson, like he's See, a close okay, second. Honestly, it's funny. I thought Samuel L. Jackson had—I don't want to say the worst, but I disliked him the most. Well, that's the point. Oh no, not not even his character. Just like I didn't—I I don't know—I didn't really like. The acting, it kind of well, got. He's old a really strong, abrasive character, and there are moments in the film where I feel like that also taints your vision of him. I thought we'll Kurt get into... Russell and Walter Goggins were the best. Who? Who was the first one? Kurt Russell. Oh yeah, he was great. Tim Roth, I thought was severely underused. Um, I wish he was used more because I enjoyed thoroughly every time he spoke. Um, same with the other, like Michael Madsen. Bruce Dern, um, who's, who's, I think it was, oh, I'm looking at it right now, James, James Parks, um, did, I really liked, um, everything that they had to offer, but, yeah, I just thought Samuel Jackson's character got old, and I just thought, I got really sick and tired of the uh, really abrasive, strong character that he played. It it really worked at first, but then I was like, alright, I like this character is just I, I'm not really getting much from this person. Yeah, I really like the stagecoach driver too. I forget his name. Ollie or something or Obi? Obi. I, oh, yeah. I think that's James I think that's James Parks. I liked him a lot, but Who played who played the Oh Bob. Oh that was oh, I'm not even gonna try and pronounce that name. But anyway, um so yeah, casting was great. Honestly, not a single complaint from anybody. They all did a great job. Yeah. Okay, that's so that's not the casting. Um, I think my favorite dynamic, well, my two favorite dynamics was between Kurt Russell <clears throat> and Jennifer Jason Lee and Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Dern. Those are my two favorite dynamics of the whole movie. Well, I just like actually and Walter Goggins, but it's his Walton. What Walton? I thought it was Walter. I thought so too, but it's Walton. Oh, Walt. Oh, whoops. I'm sorry, Walton. He, well, I just he, like his. I like his dynamic with everybody. He just like literally jumps off the screen. He's honestly. literally he he takes his character from Django and adds character to it. But it's weird because he's a one-off character in Django, but he's a central character now. Like that just goes to show, you know, a how Tarantino gives people anybody a chance, and also how how he gives them really an opportunity to thrive. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely loved him in this movie. I really wish he I at least got an Oscar nomination. He was he was fantastic. Um, and, and even just from when his beginning, when he was introduced. And speaking of that, what did you think of the environment? Like, okay, what did you think? What was your impression of how Tarantino shot this? Because my impression was that this was more... It seemed more like a play, and it didn't like there was a lot of standard over the over the shoulder close up dialogue. Now this is a very heavy dialogue, which is not ex- which is expected for Tarantino, and it's not unnor- it's not abnormal for this to happen. But it's the way that this dialogue is delivered well, that it's, was it's kind so... of different. It was it was like a play. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Well. That's one of my gripes about the film is the dialogue, but I think we should save gripes for the end. Um, but in terms of the dialogue, Tarantino has said that he wants to, he would adapt this into a play, and that's uh, I totally agree with that because this this plays as a theatrical you know production yeah in, in the terms of a stage play um, because it's 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 just what is it seven people. Oh it's, no, the eight. The hateful yeah. eight. I'm stupid. The well, hateful it's like, eight. It's like eight central characters with like a few side characters. Yeah, but it's, but it's, it's, it's like it, it revolves takes around eight people. A pe- central environment. It revolves around eight people in a central environment just talking to each other. And so, in that regard, yeah, this is really a play made into yeah. a film. And like, it worked. Don't get me wrong, it worked. But for Tarantino style, he always is a show, don't tell. Uh, the biggest thing is. Um, that I always take is like I always like using that he's a visual director is the backstory of Lucy Liu's character in Kill Bill. I don't remember her name. Oh, uh, or what? What deadly viper she was? Oh, her. Oh, uh, Oren Ishii. That was yeah. Her name. So Oren, I thought because that was really perfectly executed, and also I mean in a visually <laughs> stylistic way, but with no dialogue, you got that. Well, I mean, it was kind of prefaced that she was orphaned, but I don't think the I don't think the bride are you, said. Are you serious? Yeah, that is whole he? chapter is no, dialogue she, explaining why how she's her. No, but the, but he also shows it. But she also explains it. I, it's been a while since I've seen Kill Bill. Like she, it's literally just like it will. Because, well, the, okay, okay, fuck it. This is the gripe of the film that I have. Fuck the ending. I'm gonna say right now, there's way too much of. There's not enough of that. That's what, it, I, that's what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah, like, it's, I'm way, saying, it's way too much expository dialogue, and they just fucking say it to each other. Well, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I was using that example because you see her become orphaned, her getting her revenge, and then becoming this badass assassin. Yeah, like... But in this, it's like... So, for example, in that carriage, yeah. Walton Goggins, Goggins comes in and says, Oh, I know who Samuel L. Jackson is. He's... Uh, like, they want to put a bounty on you for this... Oh, and it's also worth mentioning that uh, Walton Goggins is uh, a conf- an ex-Confederate soldier, and Samuel Jackson is a Union soldier, like, a, a, gen- or a, a high officer, high-ranking officer. And so there's that immediate animosity well, well, they ex- them. Well, this is my problem. Like, what they did with O-Run is they explain why she's badass, and then they show everything. <clears throat> in this one, they explained why Samuel L. Jackson is such a badass, but they just sit in a carriage and talk to each other. It's yeah. literally camera one, camera two, camera one, camera they say, two. They, There's uh, no real says, innovation oh, with it. He says, oh, you killed so many men, and you, you burned down an entire prisoner of war camp. Killing confederate soldiers and your own men but it's not even interesting the way they say it because they just tell the story and they're just sitting in a in an immobile like in something where they can't even move around at least in like every other scene like every other moment of like expository dialogue or even just droning on dialogue as per tarantino um like uh like like a virgin or why do people rob restaurants camera movement just stuff like that there's always yeah the camera's always moving in this scene in this scene it's only camera one, camera two, and then it just got boring after a little bit. Honestly, like I was, well, I was listening to it and having fun, but at the same time, I'm like, is something gonna happen, or am I just gonna listen? Or it's am just I gonna watch two dialogue, people talk to and each then, other? And then Jennifer Jason Lee gets punched in the face. That was fun. People laughed at that. I didn't find that funny at all. I was just like, oh shit, that's brutal as fuck. Yeah, well, I think, like, well, see, this now there's a lot of points in this movie where people that laugh and people I were laughing, and like, I think Tarantino is a like good director because he he forces people to be uncomfortable and they don't know how to react 
So I guess you could you could show I guess as a good psychology experiment you could show people scenes from this movie and see how they react. I feel like there's a mix between gasp and just laughter. Well, it's different. It's weird because Tarantino is is a master at, at that manipulation of our emotions, and I he did that. Well, I feel like the most I mean obviously the most prevalent example is in Django, except he manipulated our uh, emotions to the point. Well, actually, no. He manipulated our art in Inglorious Bastards, I'm going to say, because Django was just pure horror. There was no two ways about that. But in, in Inglorious Bastards, especially the ending, when they just kill all of the Nazis... Well, that was funny because it was so fucking over no, the top. No, and he but rewrote the reason, history. No, but this is actually like the central thesis to the film is that he... I don't know if you've heard about this, but we've turned into the Nazis who laugh in nation's pride. Oh really? Yeah, that's that's what he, that's, I think that's, that's what he was trying to do because you know the whole time you watch the Nazis are watching a film about a Nazi huh. just completely killing and slaughtering Americans, and then the exact same thing happens to us. And what are we doing? We're laughing. <laughs> Except it's, it's flipped. Yeah. yeah, and I think that was really the commentary that Tarantino was trying to make. <laughs> and honestly, going even on a further tangent, that I think I don't know if that's what he was trying to do, but that's a commentary on Nazi Germany as a whole. That's what these people were. They, they they kind of they look back and they say we wouldn't do this and we say we would never do this but here we are laughing at the exact same situation but anyway yeah, but I mean it's also like it's Hitler and I also want to believe that Tarantino was just like screw it no I'm but also but also there are all those Nazis on below that are burning to death that are literally See, getting I, just shot I, I never at. laughed at that I mean okay just be yeah, honest we all I never, la- we all I never really laughed I never really was like aha he kills Hitler. It's just like I was like, "Whoa!" When I saw *Inglorious Bastards*, because we watched it with our parents. No, but this, enough. but the same. I kind of felt the same emotional, like, "Yeah, fuck Hitler, kill him," and like, "Fuck the Nazis." But like, yeah, in I the same, and I and I and I was guilty of that. I'm not gonna lie. But going back, I digress. I go back to the *Hateful Eight. There were scenes where people were fucking laughing, and I was horrified. I literally oh, yeah. sat there. I was horrified that people were laughing. No, I was horrified at the situation, and then I looked at these people saying. How could you possibly laugh at this situation? Um, should we talk about that scene now or later? Well, it's kind of in the middle of the film. So let's... I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, let's quickly glance over the beginning. Because the beginning is... Okay, so the first act is strictly setting up everyone's relationships. And that maybe people are hiding something. And, like, it's setting up s- subtle clues that something foul may have happened and samuel jackson is picking up on that well, i think it's really i think it's really cool because like samuel jackson notices it and then we all notice it and then we completely forget about it like i forgot about it because like See, they yeah, showed I, the close-up of that jelly bean and i'm like oh that's weird and then i completely forgot about it i remembered it the moment she was like oh you want some candy well, and i'm no like shit oh, yeah shit. that was the point i remember that too but the point well, no, being is saying, like, i completely forgot about that well i remember i was thinking about it in the back of my head i'm like Where's this damn jelly bean coming to play? I'm like, obviously someone, like, I, I thought, like, okay, someone didn't clean up properly. And that's, like, and Samuel Jackson thinks this is weird. Um, but yeah, so the first act is just setting up characters, and Kurt Russell doesn't trust anyone. Samuel, he only trusts Samuel Jackson, and he doesn't trust anyone. Um, there's that relation, there's, like, the complex relationship with the, with Goggins and and Bruce Dern and uh, they like he's a union official or a general and Goggins was a soldier who like his father fought with him or something and they get close and then there's the tension between uh Samuel Jackson and Dern's character because they're two separate sides and also Samuel Jackson African American um and he's in his in his um a union officer he literally is the symbol that everything Bruce Dern was trying to crush eradicate yeah. and eradicate from the United States in the Civil War. So, yeah, that's pretty much setting up everything with that. Uh, just character setup and just kind of setting things up for the second act. And now, yes, now let's get to the scene that we were talking about that I think this movie is going to be infamous for. Um, yeah, like, well, okay, so essentially what happens is Samuel L. Jackson puts a gun right in front of Bruce Dern. And he's gonna egg him on to shoot him. We also we also missed the point because okay, Goggins is the sheriff, the new sheriff of that area, and 
And so, uh, if he if Samuel Jackson shoots him, he's guilty of murder. But if Bruce Dern raises a pistol and Samuel Jackson kills him in self defense, he's free. So that's that's the 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 context of that. But so essentially, what happens is we go through this really long and and elaborate, complicated story uh, regarding Samuel Jackson taking prisoner uh, Bruce Dern's son. Well, what's the reason that he takes him prisoner? I don't remember. Well, okay, oh, so no, because they started hunting him. Well, yeah, so the Confederates put this big bounty on Samuel Jackson's head because he was an African-American soldier, and killing him would be just kind of a big symbol. And so, and Samuel Jackson is a bounty hunter, so it's it was kind of like Django in the sense that he's like, oh, I kill white people and I get paid for it, what's not the like? And so these... Uh, Confederates would keep going out trying to kill him, and then Samuel Jackson would end up killing them. So Bruce Dern's son, I think it was something for honor, he ended up trying to go after Samuel Jackson, but then Samuel Jackson got the upper hand. And so, and he said, oh, he was begging for his life, and he said who his father was. And so Samuel Jackson strips him naked, marches him through the, the snowy tundra, makes him... Well, he's tor- Well, this is this torture in itself. He just keeps walking until he collapses from exhaustion and just freezing, and then he makes him suck his dick, and, and then he's he kills laughing him. while he does it, and then he kills him. Yeah. So the first thing I noticed was even from the opening shot. This is a homage to the Good and the Bad and the Ugly, where Tuco made uh, Clint Eastwood's character Blondie walk through the desert uh, as punishment for uh, trying to kill him in the first place. And even from the scene, the very intro is when they're walking over a, I'm just going to call it a snow dune, it's the same exact thing as in The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, and that's very expected of Tarantino, the callback to a Sergio Leone film. Um, and then, so essentially, that in and of itself is torture. I, and, then peop, and then people were like, oh, okay, okay, this is really bad. And then he, then he started talking about the blowjob, and I think it was like when he said Big Black Dingus that everybody just fucking lost it. And then when he started giving him a blowjob, he just started laughing. They started laughing maniacally. This is where everybody started to like laugh hysterically. And I was I sat there horrified. Both of us. We had and we had this woman that we'll talk about in a second. She was laughing. And I was like, what the fuck? And then like people all around us were laughing. And then I was like, "What the hell? This isn't funny as at all. This, I'm like, is, this horrifying. is this is horrifying." I'm like, and then, "What is and so then, funny about this?" And then, and then, at the end of the scene, Bruce Dern. Well, he okay. Well, Samuel Jackson says the only reason he did this to this one particular man was because he he said that he was Bruce Dern's son. And at that point, Bruce Dern grabs the pistol that Samuel Jackson had laid out for him, and Samuel Jackson kills him. And then that's and then the and then the screen goes black. Well, oh, and then well, Bob and then Bob the is piano. playing Silent Night, which plays into it. But I thought that was really a good juxtaposition to what was going well, yeah. on, on screen. Well, and then Bob closed the piano, and then the screen goes black in intermission, and everybody was like, "Holy shit!" You could you could literally hear the exhale from everyone. Yeah. Well, and then and then the woman next to us. So. Which isn't bad. This isn't bad. Oh, no, 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 not at all. She was really into it. I was really excited that she was super into it. And Brian and I are talking because we were fully intent, uh, intention of doing this first impression. And we were just kind of like, all right, what do you think? Getting our thoughts down. We're like, I'm like, wow, this is a really slow burn. This was a really different movie. The first act one of Tarantino of this movie is is a completely different animal of what we've ever seen from tarantino before. yeah and i was like this like this first shot like i guess like his, his like chest exploded it, was, it wasn't like as gory as i thought it was gonna be which we'll get to and i was like wow this is a really like slow burning pace and then the woman next to us overheard us she was like a young woman maybe like mid mid 20s yeah, late 20s like and she just turns like that's fucking intense and brian and i were like wow like we just were like I, I was genuinely happy that she was really having a good time with this. Um, and she was, like, kind of talking back and – like, we were talking back and forth what we thought. I'm like, this is really slow, but I'm really interested. And she's like, that was really intense. And I'm like, well, if if I know Tarantino, this is about to get really, really – Yeah, it was like the powder keg is literally about to explode. The fuse, the long fuse has been lighting, and now it's finally reached the end, and the powder keg is about to explode. And boy, does it. But, 
um, this is this is what I said when I came back to school. Um, the, my teacher was naturally like, "Who saw the hateful eight And me, and I said, "I'm like was the most audacious one in the class, I guess." And I said, "This was his most ambitious film for this purpose alone, also for the whole experience that he's trying to deliver, but mainly for this first act in and of itself." Because, like I said, this wasn't—I was not expecting this from Tarantino. <clears throat> like, yeah, of course, the dialogue and whatnot. But it really, I've never really seen Tarantino set up pieces as intricately and as delicately as he has in the first act of this film. Now, does he actually follow through with that? I don't think so at all. But the point being is that he, that he attempted to. And I really applaud that because I've never seen this from him before. And that really took balls because this is a three and a half hour long movie regard anyway. And the fact that he like took his time with this... I really have to applaud him, and he did do a good job, I have to say, and I feel like that's why it's so polarizing of a film, because it takes so long to get what everybody likes in Tarantino, the blood and gore and violence, uh, and so that's why I think it's, um, that's why I think it's really, uh, really ambitious, but also to say the rebuttal from a kid, he said... Um, I think, I think, I completely disagree with that. I think it was boring. I think it wasn't original at all. all and he's like, it, all it was was homages to other things. And then I didn't say this to him because the class ended, but I'm like, I went to my professor and I'm like, has this fucking idiot ever seen another Tarantino movie? Has he ever seen Kill Bill? Kill Bill, the essence of Kill Bill is a homage to like, five other movies that dude just seems like he likes hearing himself talk it's like our own it's i don't know it's like he just likes hearing himself talk well i was like you obviously don't know what tarantino is about if you said all like this movie was nothing but a homage and i'm like that's tarantino yeah. since he made kill bill but like even at the start of reservoir dogs he based that off of infernal affairs it's tarantino is the guy who is the master Wait, of callbacks affairs. but what the one that's based off of, uh, or the one that the part is based off of? Yeah. Oh, what wait. What that made? It's not Infernal Infer I'm pretty Affairs. sure Infernal My Affairs. My bad. I meant, there's another, no, it's another Japanese movie. I didn't mean Infernal Affairs. My bad. I was going to say. It's another Japanese uh, movie where it's essentially the same exact plot. But my bad. My bad on Infernal Affairs. That's The Departed. I'm getting my movies mixed up. But the point is, Tarantino's career is based off of movie homages and callbacks. He is just good at what some movies fail and that they just kind of lose themselves in the homage. Tarantino takes takes that material and gives it his own twist, and he does it successfully. So that's my little rant about that thing. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna say, like, you're talking about the the powder keg. That okay? I and I said, I called it. I'm like, this movie is gonna get very, very violent. Because one thing that I noticed from Tarantino, from Inglorious Bastards, and um, uh, Django. Is that, like my own term that I coined it for myself is he uses sporadic violence to tell a story. Now that's not this, a coin term. Like, what? That's not a coin term. Well, I, well, it's how I see. I just said it without really hearing it. So I'm like sporadic violence. It's just what I what I said it as for myself, and um, and so um, I'm like, okay, this is gonna get very very violent. In a minute. Well, there's always a well, build. I, okay, when I said a minute, I didn't I didn't literally mean a minute because this film no, I know what, literally yeah. within like two minutes of the intermission, it's erupting blood. Well, literally. I'm just saying like there's always there's always a build up, and then there's always like the apex of the violence where it's just literally just shit is happening left and right, and you're just kind of caught up in it. But that's that's the whole second act. Yeah. It's just this what you said apex of violence, and it's like. It doesn't, like, it subsides, and then it's like, it peaks, and then it goes down, and then it peaks again, and then it goes down a little bit, and then it peaks, and then it just keeps, like, the peaks get smaller and smaller until you're at literally at the last two minutes of the film, where it's, it's not, it's, it's like a normal rising action, falling and descending, it's, it's just, it's just spikes that keep going up, so, immediately we get into this movie, and Tarantino makes his, I guess, cameo. Yeah, as the narrator oh, in, in the voice of, in the in the form of an omniscient, all-knowing narrator. Which or Tarantino. Which I like that, but I also didn't like the fact that 
you leave the intermission and you're saying, holy shit, what's going to happen? And what do they do? Nobody starts shooting at each other. It's just like, oh, well, they take the body out and, but the tea is poisoned. And it's like, that's it. You know, I feel like it, we were kind of cheated in the fact that it's like this no. rising tension and then he just dies and then they just throw I don't, him out. Well, I don't think we were cheated. Yeah. Um, no, because we were led to believe that the fact that Samuel L. Jackson kills Bruce Dern will actually lead to something, and it doesn't. No, it does. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. Because they're um, how does it come up again? They're saying like, it, it who poisoned the tea at like during that, and it's like it couldn't be Bob because he was playing Silent Night. It couldn't be um Tim Roth because he no, was like next. No, to Bobby. I know. I meant it. Yeah, it's a good dynamic. It's saying who poisoned the tea. But what I'm getting at is that you're you're meant no you're, you know you're what there's no consequence yeah there's no consequence of that and that's the point that's why the tension was racked up because we didn't know somebody was poisoning the tea when this was going down so the tension was placed in a different way and then and then it's like the intermission you're like oh my god what's gonna happen and then it's like oh well somebody just used that as an advantage to poison the tea the fact that Bruce Dern died had no impact on the story whatsoever. Well, it did, but not in the way that we thought it was going to be. And I feel like that's that's cheating a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, cinematically speaking, that's it's really good. But thinking back, if you if you take two seconds in retrospect I mean, to think back, adds, you're adds, like, well, him dying really had no impact. I mean, that whole I think that whole thing kind of made the audience because that was when my shift for Samuel L. Jackson happened. Because the whole time you're like, oh, this is a good guy. I relate to this guy, and then. Because it's called the hateful eight, so you're like, well, do you hate like they either you hate like the audience hates them, they hate each other, they're just spiteful, hateful people, and at that point, it was when he said, like that whole ordeal was when my idea of Samuel Jackson shifted, and from that point on, I just didn't like the character. Um, I was actually kind of rooting for him to get killed, to be completely honest, because I just didn't like him. But um, anyway. So we get in, and this tea is, or this coffee is poisoned, and now that's a tension, that's tension in itself, because you know it's poisoned, and you see who takes it, and you're like, oh, who's going to drink it, who's going to drink it, and then Kurt Russell and the, the, the coach driver take it, and they just start vomiting blood, Yeah, and it's like, it's completely over the top, and like, that was kind of funny, I guess. Because I was more like, oh my god, that's so gross. I think I was laughing because I was completely devoid See, of this blood. is where, and like... Greg, and Greg Nicotero did the, did the gore yeah. effects in this, so it's like, I'm like, I'm not surprised. It's a very deep, rich This This guy, blood. like, um, this guy, like, I got, like, a Sam Raimi vibe when everybody was, like, vomiting blood on each other. That, like, in fact, that it's, like, so over the top and so, like, it's played off as comedic, but it's not supposed to be, kind yeah. of. Like, this guy's dying in agony. But it's supposed. It's kind of like funny. I wasn't laughing. I was laughing at like how over the top it yeah, was. Yeah, that's what like I didn't mean. Like I thought it was hilarious. This guy was dying, but I was like, wow, this is completely over the top. I was just saying though that it's like people. I feel like people were laughing because it like looked funny. Yeah. You know. Oh no! I was just like, holy shit! And then I think he was shot with the shotgun, right, or something, or no, no oh. one was shot. That no, and that scene because there's only those two, and then Samuel Jackson's like. All right, everyone get against the fucking wall. Yeah. And then that's when he trusts Goggins, which is a funny scene. He's like, I only trust you because you were about to drink the tea. And, like, you're not, like, you're stupid, but you're not that stupid. Yeah. And then the whole time Goggins is like, I don't trust... Michael Madsen because you're the ugliest person in the room. And he's like, and he's like, oh, I fucking knew it. Now, okay. And then, and then uh, Samuel Jackson goes in this big spiel about trying to deduce who it was. He's like, Bob... You like he's like well I was playing Silent Night during the whole thing he's like well you know what yeah you didn't you didn't kill the oh and this is when the whole mystery of like something of like fouls afoot yeah because the original owners uh Bob had said they're not there and and the whole time Samuel Jackson knows something is up and he's alluding to this and he says well the original owners would never serve a Mexican well so, the way they say it is like there used to be a sign right there that said no dogs and no Mexicans the last time I checked many uh, allowed dogs in here or something. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's it was, funny. It was something like that. And then he's like, hey, uh, the, the seat that the, that the general was sitting on, there's like a, it's like a, like a, a quilt. Yeah. And he says, remove the quilt and there's blood on it. And he's like, all right, well, you didn't kill these two guys or you didn't poison the coffee, but you killed them. 
insane. And now, granted, this was kind of funny, just how over the top it was. Again, he Samuel Jackson proceeds to shoot Bob in the chest, take two pistols, lowers them, and blows his head clean off. Yeah, that okay. That was funny. That's definitely because he because like he's lying on the ground and then and then his face literally and then just he explodes. Just, and then he just clicks both. He cocks both pistols, points both of them at the head, and the head just explodes. And it's and like then, that's funny because that's like that's just so unrealistic and just so stupid that it's like it's funny. Yeah. Didn't he say like goodbye, senior Bob, or some shit like something like that? Some some weird one. But yeah, so Bob's out of the picture. The general's out of the picture. Yeah, and so now it's like we have these guys, and then they're about. I think he's about to shoot someone, and then Michael Madsen turns around and says, "I did it, I did it," and then and then out of nowhere he's like, "All right, well, all right, I got you," and then. I, I like this bit. I like this whole bit from from when this event to the end of like the setting up. So Samuel Jackson gets shot through the floor, and I well, thought, it pans down underneath the floorboards, and you see some guy, and he's like, "Fuck you, dude!" And then he yeah, shoots he up, shoots him in the balls, and then and then I think Samuel Jackson just shoots, hits uh Tim Tim Roth, Matt, Michael Madsen's like, "No, don't shoot." Goggins doesn't know what to do, and then. Um, the floor comes up and whatever, and then I forget what happens after that, but it establishes that there's like more players involved. Yeah. And then. And then it's like the backstory of how that. And then, it, and then it's the setup of everything. So it turns out Channing Tatum's in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> that was a that was crazy. Well, I feel like I knew he was. Like I remember reading that, and then I completely forgot. Oh, I didn't know. I had no idea until he showed up. So it turns out. Oh, and also, uh, Kurt Russell. We kind of we forgot to mention it. His whole thing is that he th- he doesn't trust anyone because he thinks that they are trying to break his prisoner free. Which and, it turns out everybody except Samuel what, Jackson and Walton like, Goggins Because are. the whole time I was like trying to deduce who it was. I'm like, okay, I bet it's Tim Roth and these other guys are just innocent. And I thought it was kind of a cheat that it was pretty much everyone. I didn't really like that. I thought it was kind of a cop-out. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, that takes the mystery out of everything. It was literally everyone that was involved. But the setup was nice. Um, so they go in. They literally kill everyone that was there. So it's like the owner, uh, her her husband, the stable boy, and uh, Zobel. I love Zobel. Yeah. She was their coach. Like, they, she brought them there. To, had, unknowingly, didn't know who they were. And, and they killed her. But I love Zobel. She's so she's awesome. She's a great stunt woman. And I think she's hot. Yeah. But, um, so they kill everyone. It sets up where, how the jelly bean got on the floor because Tim Roth shot, he wanted candy and he shot the person that had the, that had the candy and like it, it ended there. Um, how they killed the man and Bruce Dern was there as well. And they thought he was a senile old man and he's like, whatever, I'll, I'll go along with it. So that's the whole setup. And I thought it was really interesting. And so then we find, then we come back, um, and I think, I, how did they get Channing Tatum? The, oh, they, they, Samuel Jackson said he was going to shoot, um, Jennifer Jason Lee, and, <laughs> and so Channing Tatum, I think there's a big ordeal about it, and then Channing Tatum comes out, and I knew he was gonna get killed when yeah. he comes out. And that was that honestly was kinda funny, I'm not gonna lie. Oh, that was hilarious. So Channing Tatum's like, Alright, you're gonna shoot my sister oh yeah, they're sisters. Or brother and sister. So, oh, I'm gonna come out. I'm coming out. He he opens the trap door and Jennifer Jason Lee is like kind of like happy music. And I forget what they they have like pet names for each other and they're like, Oh, like good to see you, like whatever and then he says, oh, I told you I'd get you, or something like that. And then he gets fucking shot in the back of the head by Samuel And then Samuel Jackson. Jackson just starts laughing. Well, I don't think he's laughing. Yeah, he, he is. He's, he's literally like, ha, 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 and shoots him in the head. Like, Yeah, and then and then the blood spurts all over Jennifer Jason Lee, And then she's, like, freaking out. She's going to kill them. And she offers... Now, the, I think Goggins has the biggest character arc of everyone. Actually, he's really the only character arc of everyone. And so, Lee offers Goggins, saying, "Hey, you don't want to help this this Union guy, this African African American, because he stands against everything that you stand for, like as a person." And Goggins says, "You know what? Fuck you." Well, I'm, no, I'm she also says, "She also says, um, 
I have like all my gang is coming to get me. Yeah. And so and then they're like trying to bribe him like uh, Tim Roth. He's like I'm going to die and you have so you can take my body, get my bounty and you can um take the bounties that Samuel Jackson has and get a lot of money and help your help your town or whatever. Also side note I just remembered Tim Roth's character is the grandfather of Michael Fassbender's character in Inglorious Bastards. Really? What was the name? I don't know. I don't remember. How did you know that? Because I saw an interview with Tarantino where he said one of the ca- I thought I read it somewhere, but he said one of the characters is a relative of someone in, in Inglorious. No Bastards. shit. Huh. That's yeah, cool. I believe that's what it is. Well, you knew about the Kill Bill connection, right? The Django. The the red cigarettes, right? No. Wait, uh, Schultz. You know. Uh, oh, the, Schultz. Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah, the grave that the bride is buried, Beatrix Kiddo is buried in is oh, is yeah, yeah, yeah. is yeah. um what's his name? Schultz's wife. Yeah. Um no, but the Lucky Strikes has been yeah that's that's like just a thing that there's like the that's throwaway tobacco is, yeah. that he just puts in yeah. Not Lucky Strikes, it's a uh, Red Apples. Lucky Strikes is our is the real life equivalent. But anyway. But anyway, yeah. So Goggin says, you know what? Screw that. Um. I'm not gonna. Oh, how does Madison get killed? I don't remember. I don't remember. I think he just gets shot. Yeah, he like pulls a gun or something, and I think Goggins shoots him. Something. But uh, and then, so kind of like fast forwarding. Uh, well, Goggins passes out as he's about to like take her like captive, and he passes out because he's shot in the leg, and Samuel Jackson is shot in the balls, and he's like, "Oh, you gotta be kidding me!" He's like, "White boy, wake up! White, wake up!" And she's like crawling towards his gun. And I don't remember, but somehow, like, she doesn't get it. I think he wakes up. And then we get the ending. So the whole thing also with Kurt Russell, why he's keeping her alive, is because he's the hangman. And every bounty he he takes, he makes sure they hang. So that's why they're trying to keep her alive. So I think he wakes up, and they're about, like, they're holding guns on her, and they're like, oh, we're going to shoot her. And then I think Samuel Jackson says, you know... In the spirit of Kurt Russell, we have to hang, or we have to do it in the spirit of the hangman. And the movie ends with them putting a noose around her and hanging her by the rafters, literally pulling her up, like hand, like hand over hand, hand over fist, pulling her up, uh, through the uh, up in the rafters, and she's hanging there, and they tie it on the bed, and they just watch her hang, and everyone's covered in blood. Um, it's assumed that they don't survive. Well, and the, well, the movie ends with the whole idea, like the whole. Uh, there's a theme that Samuel Jackson is carrying this letter around, supposedly written by Abraham Lincoln. We find out that it's bullshit, but uh, but Walter Goggins believed it or something. No, it was Kurt Russell and Goggins said, "You really think that?" Yeah. Would well, and then and then the gone. ending is um Goggins uh, reading it to him, reading it to Samuel Jackson. I think. Is there like a gang outside, or is no? It... Well, there's a blizzard, but they said the gang would come after the blizzard. Yeah, so so it ends very. It's either they die or they don't, but it's 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 very. It's like the thing. Yeah, which is what Tarantino really pays. Well, like, he paid. He, well, he 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 homaged his own movie, Reservoir Dogs. He said it was a it was a it was a mix between Reservoir Dogs and the Thing. But the whole time I was watching it, I was like, I'm watching the Thing. Oh yeah, because it's very claustrophobic, and it's very. And that's where I think the seventy millimeter comes in because it does shoot landscape very well, but also it gets minute details very well. Yeah, well, it's it's that. That's actually a good point. I didn't like, think about like that. Like details in the face and things like and like. Well, also, it also structures. it plays just like the thing. It plays off of the whole "Who can you trust? Who do you trust?" at angle. So <clears throat> yeah, so I guess with that, that is the uh, the hateful eight. Yeah, that is the uh, that's the hateful eight. Um, so what did you? Final thoughts, I guess, because I I can't really think of anything else to bring up. Um, so what were your what are your final thoughts on? The uh, I will. I've said this, and I will say it again. <clears throat> uh, for those of you who decided to just either cheat, like cheap out, or weren't able to see the seventy millimeter Rocha, which I think that's kind of that's not really a valid excuse that if. You just said, "Oh, I, I couldn't go to a theater because Mike and I drove two and a half hours to a theater to see this." And there, and there was, I unless you live in the middle of buttfuck nowhere in the Midwest, which if you live there, sorry, um, 
there's really no excuse if you really like if you really are a cinephile and wanted to see this movie. There's no real excuse for you that you couldn't have seen it in 70 millimeter, the format which with with which it was supposed to be in. Um, because honestly, this was one of the greatest cinematic experiences of my life. My friend saw it in digital because he couldn't wait or whatever to see it in 70 millimeter, and I think and he said it's kind of a testament I think honestly because he said the movie sucked. And and then he's like, I'm not gonna see it in 70 millimeter because I don't want to pay 20 bucks to see it, and because he's like, it's not worth it. And I'm like, you know what, man, you really missed out because it, it, I think this movie is something much greater than just the movie itself. I think it is. It this is how movies are supposed to be watched, how they're supposed to be made. Um, it's more of what movies are, at least to me, and I think to us as a culture. They should be something that's an experience that you can all come together for that you know, you all know and love, and you just have fun with it. And I was honestly taken into that world. I was enraptured with it. And that's really the essence of film to me. And I honestly had a blast. And for all of you who missed it in the 70mm format, I'm really sorry that you did because this was awesome. This wasn't Tarantino's greatest film by any means or by any stretch of the imagination, but fuck was it fun. And so that's really like, I think that's really what I have to say about it. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. It was, it was a great time. It was a fantastic cinematic experience. Um, I, I, if I were to rank this, I mean, my favorite Tarantino is Inglorious Bastards. And then probably Django, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. I think this is like in the middle. Uh, it's definitely not his worst. Oh, I mean, definitely I'd have to not. That yeah, my friend was full. Of, our friend was full of shit when he said it's his worst. I'm like, dude, get get off your fucking pretentious high horse, man. Like, yeah. I'm not if you're listening to this, dude. I'm not taking a shot at you, but it's definitely not his worst film. Yeah. So I don't know. I I um I'd give this a pretty uh like a moderately high recommend. Um, yeah, like because it is a it is a fantastic. It is really showcases how great of a filmmaker Tarantino really is. And uh, it is a good it is a good film. Um so I would definitely give this like a moderately high recommend. Yeah, like I would give this a a, a really good recommendation like, I'd give this a too. Full price. What? Movie. I'd give it a full price. Yeah, like I would give it a really good yeah, full price recommendation. But it's weird because, like, I, I, I don't know if 70mm format will ever be available again. Because if that's the case, I will I would recommend it to literally people who, like, hate Tarantino or who hate long-winded movies to go see this movie. But if, if you were to buy it on Blu-ray or DVD or just watch or stream it, I would recommend it to most of the people. But, if, but you really got to be committed to it um, because if you get bored easily or you don't, like if you if you have a short attention span, uh, I wouldn't recommend this movie to you, just for the sole fact that you would get bored. Uh, but everybody else, definitely, I would recommend it to anybody, almost anybody. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, I guess that uh, that concludes this this uh, other iteration of uh, first impressions with the hateful eight. And uh, thank you, everyone for listening in and tuning in and supporting the show and we will see you next episode yeah thanks guys see you thank you see you later thank you for listening to this episode of amateur all tours if you like what you've heard want to leave a review or even make a possible suggestion for brian and i to discuss you can follow us on instagram at the Amateur All Tours on Facebook at Amateur All Tours Podcast. We even send us an email at the Amateur All Tours Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, the Amateur All Tours Podcast at gmail.com. That is one word. Cover design was composed by Sarah Jacobs. You can find more of her work at our own website, Digital Adventures. Opening and closing theme was performed by the CCH Jazz Ensemble, which was found using a Creative Commons search. Once again, we would like to personally thank you for supporting the show. Stay tuned for future episodes. Be sure to let us know what you think. And thank you once again. Thank you.